0: Well, good morning, everyone. Glad that you're here. Glad to see so many smiling faces present in the room. I know that you were, those of you who are watching online, we are uh, we're thrilled that you're joining us today. Uh, we are finishing up this week and next. Some of you've been away for the summer, just getting back. Many different things going on. We're finishing up a study in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel. And Ezekiel lives in a time where it feels like the entire world around him has just exploded. Now, I've never been present when an explosion takes place, but I don't know if you watched any of the videos of this past week of the bomb that went off in Beirut. Uh, I, I just wanted to show you about a minute of this blast if you haven't seen it, because to me it shows the way the world can get shattered change in an instant. last video, that section, just listen to the windows of the people who are just filming from who knows how far away, at least a mile away. Ezekiel's living in a time where it feels like a bomb has gone off. Now, we pray for the people in Beirut. At least 150 people were killed. At least, I mean, you can imagine an explosion of that extent. 5,000 were injured. Quarter of a million people are homeless in the city of Beirut after that. In Ezekiel's time, he feels like a bomb has gone off in his world. He was headed to the priesthood. He was going toward the age of 30. The next thing he knows, the nation has been taken into exile. He lives 700 miles now from Jerusalem. Uh, by a canal or a river called the Kabar, about 200 miles from the capital of Babylon, he is a—he's—he's he's an exile. He's a stranger in a strange land, and he's called to be a prophet to a people who, even though they've been carried off into exile, are not living a life to the glory of God. They—they—the nation has sinned. There's been a corporate uh, sin from their leaders to the priesthood to the. Uh, the people themselves who have worshiped idols, and as a result, God has brought his judgment on the nation of Israel, on Jerusalem. The, if you read Ezekiel, if you've been staying with us, you know that what has occurred in Ezekiel is all from God. It's because of the people's sins, but it's because of the judgment of the Lord, because God wants them to know that he is the Lord. In his judgment, in his his, his wrath coming down upon sin. He wants them to know that it's him that's done all of this and that he is the Lord. So Ezekiel, for a period of time, he prophesies to the people, come back to the Lord, God's judgment is coming, and, and get to a place to say Jerusalem is going to fall. Don't think this is going to be a short-term deal that we're here. It's going to be a longer uh, exile than any of you think. Then he prophesies to him that Jerusalem is going to fall Jerusalem falls. Now the people are feeling hopeless. Jerusalem is down. The temple has been destroyed. What's going to happen? And then Ezekiel starts to, middle of the book, turn the prophecy toward the future. What's going to happen in the days ahead? And he says, listen, your shepherds have been really bad shepherds, God speaking. Your shepherds, your leaders have been bad leaders. But I'm going to send a good shepherd. The perfect shepherd to shepherd my people. I'm going to. Um, I'm going to. You, your hearts have been really, really hard. You've become sinful people. I'm going to replace your heart of stone with a soft heart. You've been. You've been going under your own spirit. I'm going to put my spirit within you. Your Your nation is dead. You You are a dead people. But I'm going to take those bones and I'm going to raise them up and I'm going to breathe my spirit into them. And life is going to return. There is hope that Ezekiel prophesies to the nation, and really, I believe it's a whole messianic promise. The good shepherd is Jesus. Um, the heart of stone that really gets replaced—the sinful heart—only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is born uh, is not born is poured out at Pentecost, and the church is born. The people of God are are born on that day. Life comes to us. Then in thirty-eight and thirty-nine, I've I've kind of made fun of Gabriel and Scott over the past couple of weeks. Um, They did great jobs preaching, and I assigned them like I gave Scott "Heart of Stone," heart you know, "Heart heart of Flesh" and "Spirit," and then Gabriel got the "Dry Bone" sermon. I'm going to get Gog and Magog uh, this morning, Uh, so uh, I just want to encourage you to buckle up because in 38 and 39, it's still part of the same flow of the passage. It's still, it's not a separate unit. It's part of, it's part of the entire prophetic picture that Ezekiel is giving to the nation. And I I wanna set it up just a little bit before I get into it by saying a couple of things. Um, And some of what I say could stir the pot, so to speak, uh, a little bit. And I'll say it for this reason. Number one, people spend their whole lives studying these two chapters. They dissect them, they take them apart, they look at it, what does this mean, who is this, what is this, when did this occur, what is this all about. And to me, if, when they do that, they get lost in the weeds, so to speak. They get lost in the particulars when I think God is trying to point out a picture. Number two, no matter how much you study this, you don't really know what it means. I mean, you really don't because there's so much i believe that's symbolic in this but there are truths that we can also gain from this passage number 3 i i think a lot of this and we're going to talk about this a lot of this is referring to end time prophecy to the end and i'll i'll walk us through that a little bit but I, I, I'm not going to, if I was going to do all of the apocalyptic millennium, pre tribulation rapture, mid tribulation rapture, post tribulation rapture, seven years, thousand years, if I were to get into all that, we'd be here for days. I mean, really, there's, it's so complicated. But here's what I want you to know going in we confessed, I believe, in the return of Christ this morning. That's critical. I believe in the return of Christ. I believe that the church will be gathered up with Christ. I believe that we will be with him in heaven. Beyond that, I'm a little unclear on some of the details. And I have a view, which I'm not even gonna tell you. I have a view on the end time stuff because you'll say, well, that's not my view. Well, great. You know what's great is that we can worship together. And I guarantee you that your view and my view and the person on your right and left, whatever their view is, we're all wrong in some sense on this. Because if God had wanted to make it clear to us to know beyond a shadow of doubt every instant and everything that was going to take place, he would have told us clearly rather than symbolically, rather than in pictures and in framework. I mean, there are people who believe all of Revelation already happened. It's already occurred. And we're just living in the... Po- I mean, two others who believe it's literal every date, every year, everything. It's got to happen just like that. We've got all these spectrums in between. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you to hold your view of the end times lightly past the truth that Christ is going to return and the church is going to be with him and that we, we have hope. God wins. Um, that, that there is a future. Here's the reason I want to help you hold it a little bit lightly as I get into this. And hopefully you'll stay with me through this introduction to, so we get to it. But the reason I want to hold, tell you to hold it lightly is my favorite professor in uh, college was a woman by the name of Dr. Rowena Strickland. Dr. Strickland was the first woman to get her doctorate from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. The first woman, because you know what? They didn't let women get doctorates before her time. She wrote her dissertation on the Jewish expectations for the Messiah. And she wrote, I read it when I was in college, and she did a whole class on it. And she took apart in her dissertation how the Jewish people read the Old Testament so that they knew what the Messiah was going to look like when he came. They, they knew the prophecies of Ezekiel and Isaiah. and they, they were not, we at times act like, oh, the Jews must have been ignorant of what the, no, no, they knew it well. But they had, they had made themselves a picture of what he was going to look like when he came. You know what? They were, they were wrong. So that when Jesus stepped out of heaven into the present, the, the world, they said, you know, he doesn't match our picture. And they missed him. Because they held so tightly to their picture of prophetic literature. And, and I've always been af- not afraid, but kind of like, Lord, I want to hold it lightly. I don't want to miss you when you show up. Because I am so locked in to my view of what things look like. And so I'm so locked in that I miss how you're going to come. So with all of that, as kind of a light backdrop. Uh, let's look at uh, this picture from Ezekiel Ezekiel 38 and 39. Let me say this too. I hope you'll read it. I'm only going to read a couple of passages from 38 and the end of 39 because it's pretty lengthy, but then I'm going to summarize the rest, which I hope I'll do a good enough job that it doesn't color things, but it just gives you the word of God. Here's chapter 38. Verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel saying this. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. The chief prince of Meshach and Tubal prophesy against him and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army Your horses, your horsemen, fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets. Also, Gomer with all its troops, and Beth-Togormah from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. So, here's what we get. We get Ezekiel speaking of this prince, this chief called Gog from the land of Magog. And then he, by God, it's God who orchestrates this whole thing. God says, I'm going to put a hook in their noses and I'm going to bring them to this place. There's going to be this consortium of nations Seven nations that are going to come together and they're going to come against my people. And he goes on to say, my people will be living in peace and prosperity. They'll be living in cities without walls. And I'm going to bring these nations with their horses and their helmets and their shields. And they're going to attack my people. And we know that it's not present Tense. We know that it's not happening right then. We know that it's in the future sometime because he says in verses 8 and 16, in future years or in the days to come, or some translations say the distant future. So at some point, Gog will gather his nation, Magog, with other nations and make this great, great army. Now, there are a number of questions that rise, right? Right? right away as we try and interpret this well why is God doing this why would God bring this alliance of nations against his people in Ezekiel's prophetic language he's saying the nations are probably looking at the nation of Israel and saying God has abandoned them there is no God and he says that God says to him So, I'm going to show my greatness and my holiness. I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know who they who. The nations will know that I am the Lord. He's doing it so that his name will be honored. His name will be declared holy. His name will no longer be profaned among the nations. Now, I get. I could uh, talk about this for quite a while, but it seems like God's name is being profaned among the nations. That God's name is becoming less and less holy. God's name is being dishonored. We want to be a people who honor the name of God. Amen? Who bring glory to his name. So hang on. Here we go. The nation Magog under the leadership of Gog then comes against Israel the people of God and in chapter 39 what happens is God totally annihilates them he 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 mountains tumble uh, earthquakes occur fire falls down from heaven they 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 their skilled archers turn against each other and kill one another And what you see is a total annihilation of this alliance of seven nations that is just totally wiped out. Then God says to the people of God, I want you to go out and I want you to collect the spears and swords and wood and all the stuff. All you got to do is go collect all this stuff and you're going to use it for fuel. So for seven years, they don't have to cut down one tree because they can collect all the fuel and everything that's around them, all, all the wood that's there to burn for fuel. He also calls the, the animals to come and feed off the corpses. He, he invites them to a feast. Is the way it's the language. A feast. The, 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 the animals. And they get to feast. And he tells the people, go out and for seven months bury the bodies. Now, I don't know if you see all these sevens working here. That's seven nations, he lists seven types of, uh, seven types of uh, weapons. He It's seven months that they have to collect the bodies. For seven years, they get to burn the fuel. Seven in the Bible is the number of completeness. God is saying, I'm going to completely change the world. I'm going to completely destroy. I'm going to completely provide. What does the nation do? I mean, if you look at it, what did they do for this victory? Nothing. Nothing. They're living in peace and prosperity. These seven nations, they fall down. They come after them to destroy them. God, doesn't, God says, just stand back. I'm going to take care of this whole thing. So that, why? Here we are at the end of chapter 39. Uh, yeah, chapter 39 and following. He says this, "'I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict, and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God, and the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin, because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies.' And they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their offenses, and I hid my face from them. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will bring Jacob back from captivity and will have compassion on all the people of Israel, and I will be zealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame and all the unfaithfulness they showed toward me when they had lived in safety in the land in their land with no one to make them afraid. When I brought them back from the nations and gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will show myself holy through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face for them, for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel declares the sovereign Lord. God is doing it for his namesake. He's doing it because he is God. And the question that then arises really, is kind of numerous. There are numerous questions like, when? When when, when is this gonna happen? When are the nations gonna gather against the people of God and all the nations come and is is this a present prophecy? Is this, in other words, is this something that's going to happen to the nation of Israel soon? Or is this a Christ prophecy, the coming of the Messiah? Or is this an end time prophecy for the end of time? Now, those of you who have been a part of Fullness very long, you know what my answer is going to be yes. The answer is yes. It's about the return of the nation of Israel. It's about the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, and I believe it's about the end times as well because prophetic language many times works like that. It has multiple interpretations. Here's the thing. It doesn't work completely in the first two. (coughs) Excuse me. In other words, not everything that Ezekiel prophesies works when the nation of Israel returns to the land, nor does it even work with the coming of Jesus, though there's a fulfillment there. So there must be something that's still yet to be, that's still yet to come. You with me? Are are you still with me so far? Uh, I know, as soon as I said Gog and Magog, you're like, what? You're still stuck on that. Listen, people have spent their whole lives trying to determine who are these seven nations. And I want to say again, hold this loosely, 20 I have a book from the mid-'80s. Mid-'80s. Now, how many of you weren't even alive in the mid-'80s? Okay. Let me give you a little history. In the mid-'80s, when this book was written, the nations identified in here, Persia was modern-day Iran. Do you remember who was head of Iran in the mid-'80s? The Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, Russia, the word chief prince... Chief can be translated Rus, so people thought it was Russia. You had Brezhnev in Russia. He, you know, in, in, in my lifetime alone, you know, the, Russia is always the bad guy. Russia is always the one who's gonna be the invaders because Rus means Russia, it's north, and it, if you go straight north of Israel, it's Russia. You know, the, the USSR, it's a communist. They're the ones going to invade. So in my lifetime alone, it's been Khrushchev, Brezhnev, Putin, Putin, Gorbachev. Kind of, you know, he kind of broke things down. But in my lifetime, it's always been one of the Russian leaders, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, uh, one of the nations, I think it's put is is modern-day Libya in the 80s. Remember, Gaddafi was in so i mean everything lined up in the mid 80s uh kush by the way is modern day ethiopia which at the time was a marxist nation so you had all of these countries and they were we were we were so sure in this book that this is it this is the end times it's got to be now everything's lined up the nation of israel so it's all of these nations that are lined up hey i can tell you this Every book I've read on prophetic literature in these seven nations, it's always every nation except one. Can you guess the one that's never engaged? Never. Never America is listed as one of the seven nations. Well, of course it's not because we weren't here then. I believe Ezekiel is using picturesque language to describe the northernmost, easternmost, westernmost, southernmost nations they knew. In other words, he's saying God is going to gather, in my view, God is going to gather from the four corners of the earth, the nations to come against the people of God. And what that even means, we're not... I I have to tell you, I'm not sure. Because the nation of Israel, they do return to the land in like 60 years from when Ezekiel's prophesying. In 538 BC, they return to the nation. They rebuild the temple. They, They have their nation and they have their worship, and the nation of Israel lasts until 70 A.D. So for about 600 years, there is a nation of Israel. And of that, much less than half of that 600 years did they even rule themselves. They're ruled by Alexander the Great, the Seleucids, the Romans. They're almost always under some sort of occupation. They're very seldom independent. And never during this 600-year period does any kind of battle like this Occur. The closest thing that happens is when Rome totally annihilates the nation of Israel. Well, God doesn't exactly come through there in the way they thought. And there is no nation of Israel until 1948, when the na- nation of Israel is restored. So in the 80s, 40 years after, when all of these nations are now communists, Marxists, which is always the nations that are going to be gathered, it's never Democrats, Democratic. It could be Democrats, but may might not be, definitely not Republicans. It's never the nation of uh, America or a Democratic nation that's part of this consortium. I'm making fun a little bit, but I just want to say, I think God is saying the nations will eventually profane my name to the point that I'm going to intervene. You may be saying, well, I don't know that this is all about end time stuff. Let me just say that John, in the book of Revelation, takes language straight from Ezekiel and brings it into the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, verses 17 through 20. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God. Now, we don't think the great supper of God is going to look like this, do we? But here's what he said, the great supper of God. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Yay, let's go to the great supper of God. He goes on and says, I, I know I'm making fun, but I just want you to see he's using language straight from Ezekiel into the book of Revelation, where he's calling the birds, calling the, the animals to feast off the those that have been destroyed. He goes on and says in 17, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Again, language here borrowed from, now he's identifying the beast and the prophet, not Gog and Magog, but I know I'm trying to say probably too many things at one time, but at the same time, there has been a spirit of Antichrist in the world from the time of Paul onward. There's this, you know, the Antichrist, the the enemy, Satan, is totally trying to get the people to profane the name of God. So it, it, it's not like this is not occurring. But then in chapter 20, verses 7 through following, it said, when the thousand years are over, we could get into that for a little bit, but we'll hold on to that one for another day. Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the what? Four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle." In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be uh, tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, what we get is a picture of What Ezekiel said, John is using, I think, in the book of Revelation pretty clearly. So to me, there's a definite tie-in to the end of time. And the reason I think that so much of this language is symbolic is, let's say that all the nations of the earth do gather, and they come against the nation of Israel, and God defeats them, and I don't think it'll be horses and shields and wooden stuff those are the that's the language ezekiel could relate to you know it's he didn't know tanks he didn't know airplanes and drones and he those things weren't he used the language that he knew to describe this incredible battle however it's going to take place and whatever it's going to look like now you're probably saying to yourself wow pastor you left me with more questions than answers here Well, do you know why? Because I don't really know. I'm going to be honest. Again, I have a view in my thoughts and study about what the end of time is going to look like. Do I believe the end of the return of Christ is closer today than it's ever been? Well, yeah, that makes logical sense, right? Because it's closer than it was yesterday. But yes, I believe it's imminent. But I'm to live every single day as if this could be it. Christ could return today. This could be the moment right now. And at the same time, I'm to build generationally. Listen to me. If you get so caught up in the return of Christ that it's going to be at this moment or next week or the week after or the next six months, you will quit building generationally. So I'm to live in the moment as if, yes, this could be it, and to live with great anticipation, believing in faith, but at the same time investing in the generations of the future. What if, what if it's another thousand years? What if it's another, I have to build into my children and my children's children and their children in a, a generational church that says we could be around. Now, I hope it's not true. I, I hope Christ returns, but at the same time, the more time I get, the more I get to see people come into the kingdom who won't be left out. Here's the points this morning. I would like for us to <clears throat> look at these and just say, okay, as a result of passages like this, how, what, do, what are the truths that this tells us? What are some of the truths that are here? The first one is this, and it's in small print for some reason. It wasn't when I put it up there, because this is a biggie. It is God is the unrivaled Lord of history. What does this teach us? There is a God in heaven, and he is unrivaled. Nations will not stand against him. Satan will not stand against him. He will not allow his name to be profaned. He rules, and he reigns. He wins. It should make faith rise up within us during these days when we look around and we say, I don't know about this election. What happens if Uncle Joe gets elected? Or what happens if Donald Trump gets elected? Depending on which side of the aisle you sort of see. You're like, you feel the way the media is going after us, either way seems hopeless. What's going to happen to the economy? What's going to happen to um, churches? What's going to happen... Here, what's going to happen there. And I I want to tell you that this passage says that God is the unrivaled Lord of history. And it should cause faith to rise up within us. Because the second point is this. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. All the promises of God are what? Why? Because God is the only creature. He's the only person who can keep all his promises. You know, I may promise someone something, but you know, there are certain circumstances out of my control. So all of my promises are hopefully, possibly going to get made. But if I say to you, I'm going to come help you, I promise you, tomorrow I'm going to come help you cut down a tree. Well, what happens if I fall and break my ankle on the way out the door? Well, I can't come tomorrow and help you. Even though I promised I can't do it because you understand, there's nothing out of control of God. Nothing. So when he promises that his people will be delivered, and, and I do think this is giving away part of my hand. I, I think that what God is talking about is not just the physical nation of Israel and Jerusalem being delivered. It is about his people. Because I believe we are the people of God. And his covenantal promises apply to us. I, honestly, I can't answer every question you may have about um, the future of Judaism and the nation of Israel. God has a purpose and a plan, and he will fulfill it. Whatever he's promised, he's going to fulfill. But I do believe that a lot of this has to do with the fact that we as the people of God have been grafted into the nation of Israel because of Jesus, and there's only one way to God the Father, and that's through Jesus. But all of God's promises are yes and amen. In other words, you can trust fully that God's going to come through. He's the unrivaled Lord of history, and all his promises are yes or amen, and his promises still apply to you and me today. Third, God is a God of grace and mercy. God is a God of grace and mercy. You're saying, do you know, I don't really see that in this whole Gog, Magog thing. Where's his grace and mercy? His grace and mercy is what did the people of God have to do to see the victory of God live in peace and prosperity and honor his name? God did it all what did we what did the people of God do to deserve his grace and mercy well that's the old idea of grace they didn't do anything they just lived and God did it all what did you do to deserve your sins being forgiven? well hopefully you say nothing except received because Christ did it all for you. People, there is a victory here in Jesus that, that God's name is honored because Jesus willingly went to the cross and died on our behalf. It's an act of incredible mercy in which we receive the grace of God. God is a God of grace and mercy, and we are the recipients of that grace and mercy. Amen. I mean, this should, really, all these three points should just stir your heart. To say God is, he's, he's unrivaled. I mean, you can't even, I hate to use the word unrivaled because it seems like there might be a close second. Unrivaled means no close second. There's not even, he's in his own category. He keeps his promises. They're all yes and amen, and he's a God of grace and mercy. What should this do for me and you? I'm not going to stay here long, but long enough to maybe touch some buttons. God has put his presence in us to live as Jesus did. God has put his presence. In other words, all these first three things are so true. And because of his grace and mercy, by the power of the Spirit, his presence lives within you and me so that we can live as Jesus did. Amen? Is Christ not our model? Your, your answer should be yes. You think it's a trick question. It's not. It's not a trick question. You should live as Jesus did. How did Jesus live? He lived a life of grace and mercy and love. He, he showed the world. I mean, he was firm, right? He, was, he called things as they were. But at the same time, in authority, he showed us how to live a life of love. We, many times, we feel attacked, right, as the church. Hello? Do you not feel under attack in many ways that the gospel is under attack, that, the, that things are under attack? What do you do when you're attacked? Well, I'm going to show you one. This, I'm, this is a guy. Turn it down just a little Larry. This is a guy out just for a, uh, it's just a bike. I'm going out on a bike ride. I'm going to trail... Hey, what, what is that over to my right? What is that? Oh! And can you see the pace picking up? I am right, whoa, he's still there. He's coming after me. And I'm thinking, maybe if I take this road, he won't follow me down this road and he'll take the left fork. Wonder if he's close still. I wonder where he is. Man, man maybe I better check. Whoop! He's still there. Ride faster. Yep, still there, still coming. And if you listen to this, you can hear this guy getting out of breath. Like he is going full go. I gotta get away from this. Yep, still there. Man, I really hope this road is totally clear for the, oh no. (laughs) He gets off, runs into the woods. Hey, I'm gonna hide behind this tree, this huge tree. Surely the bear can't see me behind this tree. Wonder if he's still there. I'll take a glance. Oh yeah, 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 he's still there. Some gunshots, I don't know what the loud bang, Boom. there's a boom that, you hear it, a boom that happens. I'm just gonna keep running. When we're under attack, we we try to figure out, should I run away? Should I just hide? And that has been one, has that not been one of the responses of the church? oh my goodness, we need to separate ourselves from the world. We're under attack. We need to get out. We need to hide in the woods and not talk to anybody and just get by ourselves and get... Or we've tried to seize power for ourselves. Can I say lovingly, neither of those responses are the biblical response? As a matter of fact, in 2,000 years of church history, whenever the church has tried to... to, to seize military and political power, it's never turned out very well, ever, ever. So why should we say, oh, the things are different. Let's seize the political power. Let's seize the military power. Now, you may be, and, and on the other hand, turning into a monastery, I don't believe has, is actually the response that God has given us as a church. He is saying to be in the world, but not of the world. To love the world. To show the world the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Now you may be saying, wait a minute. Are you telling me to do nothing and become a pacifist and not be engaged in the process? No, I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying, but if you think that is the path to the gospel being shared to the world, then something has gone askew. Do you hear me? Hopefully... God will speak to your heart and to your life. Get engaged in the process, but do it in a way that's loving and demonstrates the grace of God to the world around us. Do it in a way that upholds the truths of God. Why do we uphold the truths of God? Please listen to me carefully. If you uphold the truths of God because you believe the truths of God should be the law of the land, you've just turned into a a different kind of legalist. Hold up the truths of God because it honors the name of God, which is what we're trying to point people toward. God, your, your truths are to be magnified because they are a reflection of your holiness and your name. I've probably stirred up like 20 different things here in this discussion. Um, and it's the challenge People have spent their whole lives studying Gog and Magog. And I want to say, Lord bless them. Oh, Magog. That's just, was uh, kind of funny, I thought. Um, <laughs> because that's not where your attention should go, so to speak. Your attention should go to what God did in the middle of this. To deliver his people. All, all this apocryphal language. apocalyptic language ends in a feast some you saw today is the feast of the birds feeding but there's also the wedding supper there's also the celebration supper where we come together and say christ died for our sins we're here at this banquet because ultimately at some point we partook of his body and his blood his blood which forgave our sins and his body which which delivered, which set us free, which we receive into ourselves. And so today when you came in, you should have received the communion elements. Did you get those? Well, if you didn't get them, um, Grant, could you help us and just grab like 20 of them and bring, bring me one? Because <laughs> I forgot it too. I, I don't have it here. Thank you, Caroline. I know I can't wait to the day when we have the elements again up here where we get to partake of them did you if you didn't get one go just go to the back table they're right outside the front door. I should have announced this right when we started to get the elements. I'll give you a second. We did this because we did you know we're trying to be. Distant, but now we're handing them out to everyone. So. <clears throat> here's, what, here's what communion says to us that's relatable to today. Everywhere we stand, we stand because of God's grace and mercy. It's what Jesus did for us. By his body going to the cross and being broken for us. God is the unrivaled Lord of history. And when Jesus stepped out of history, or stepped out of eternity into history, he did it on our behalf. He keeps his promises. He promised us that he would return. We're, as a matter of fact, take this, remembering his death until what? Until he comes. This is a confession of the return of Christ, both the first coming and the second God is a God of grace and mercy. We are only here because of his grace toward us and his mercy. We receive it in faith. And whenever we take this, we eat it for a reason because it signifies his presence in us. It goes to every cell in our body. It, it permeates our existence. So the body and blood of Christ, which is the Lord's table as we see it, it it's... It speaks to everything that Ezekiel is speaking to, God's victory in our lives. Therefore, we don't take it lightly. Worship team, come back up, if you would. We're going to take this, and then we're going to worship the unrivaled God of history. Lord, we thank you today. For your body that was broken for us. We thank you that we who were many are now one in you, that we are the we are the people of God because you've placed your presence within us. Lord, we thank you for your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and that because of it we are in we've entered into a new covenant relationship with you, a covenant that that your promises. They're all going to be fulfilled. So, Lord, we say thank you. This is the body of Christ which was broken for you. Take and eat. This is the blood of Christ which was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and a hope that's alive don't we we don't have a hope like wishful thinking we have a hope that's a firm reality in Christ a hope for today a hope for the forgiveness of our sins from yesterday a hope that we're forgiven in the future and that we're always in his presence and in his arms stand and let's worship the Lord as we profess the gospel together
1: how great through the shadows of my soul The work is finished The end is written Jesus Christ I live What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages steps down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings. Calls me his own beautiful savior.
0: Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. I love you. Have a great, great day in the Lord.